This evening we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to look at the opening part of that great chapter. And the theme of the evening will become clear as we press on. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, if you're reading a different translation, there'll be one or two words that may be different, but they won't be very significantly different. Now, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which you're saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me didn't prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Father, thank you so much for your grace that's come to us, your mercy, your kindness, your lavish goodness, Father. We're so grateful for every expression of the kindness of God in our lives. And Father, thank you for our brothers and sisters to the right and left of us, that we're part of your family together here. We thank you. We gather to your open word, and we gather to your presence. And now, Father, we thank you for your promise that the Holy Spirit will lead you into truth. And so, Lord, we just welcome you right now, Holy Spirit. We welcome you as our teacher. We come into your presence. We invite you, please, to feed us, Lord, please, from your word. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The verse I want to particularly uh, emphasize is that 10th verse, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's a verse about identity. We often think of grace in terms of mercy, of kindness, forgiveness even. But in this verse, Paul is saying that grace has actually given him his identity. And this is of crucial importance to us as we build spirit-filled churches that all of us are very secure in the new identity that God's given us in his new covenant arrangement with us. And when you read these words, by the grace of God, I am what I am, that very phrase kind of reminds you of another encounter where Moses, uh, asking who it was that was sending him, what is your name? What should I say if people ask me? God gives this wonderful answer, strange, enigmatic answer. I am who I am, perfect free from confusion or other influences, uncontaminated, unthreatened, uncreated. I am who I am. 
And somehow this word of Paul seems to echo that. And he's saying, by God's grace, I am who I am. I have an identity that God's given me that's somehow wrapped up in my relationship with God and prevails over what I formerly used to be. And it's important for us to see that, that if you'd asked Paul some years earlier, who are you? He would have answered very differently, actually. He would have said things like this, well, actually, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, I'm the real thing. I'm an orthodox Jewish guy. And not only that, I excelled. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I had the best teaching in the country. And I excelled above my brothers. Uh, That's who I am. I'm the product of background, of uh, family. uh, And that's, that's my identity. And to be honest, that's how many of us can be, that our identity comes from our, our roots, our family, our education, our accomplishments. And really, when we meet one another, we often ask, well, who are you? How are you? And, and people, to be honest, can have all kinds of identity difficulties, but we are thinking, well, it's to do with where I've come from. But today, very often, to be perfectly honest, society is so uh, kind of out of out of keel, that so often people have huge kind of identity problems. Who are they? And we can even bring that into the church. Who am I? Who am I? Well, we can say, well, this is my background. This is what I've accomplished. That's where I come from. And that's the way Paul would have answered. That's my root. That's my identity. That's where I've arrived. But he's not saying that anymore. And it's an amazing thing that actually in the passage we just heard Alan referred to a moment ago, Paul starts, he talks about his background. He said, I count all of that as rubbish. It's nothing now because God's given me a completely new identity. Not only has he given me mercy, he's given me a fresh and completely new identity which makes all that went before, though he could have been very proud of it, of no significance whatsoever. God has given him something completely fresh and completely new. Now, some of us, wouldn't necessarily be proud of our background. Uh, We can't say, well, I came from really good stock, I came from a really good family, I had brilliant education. That's not our story. And so for some of us, well, yeah, I'm not very proud of who I am. Paul could be rather proud of who he was. And yet he was a very complex guy because actually he was also responsible for the death of Stephen who was arguably one of the most shining lights of the young new church. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, signs, wonders, an incredible man of God. And when he was stoned to death as the first Christian martyr, it says that uh, Paul was there and it seems like he was responsible. He was the the senior person present and, and... And so on one side, he's saying, well, this is who I am. I've got all this background. On the other side, he's got this thing. He's saying, well, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, as we just read, because I persecuted the church of God. And he's got in his background that kind of, can I really be forgiven for this? Is it possible that God would actually blot out that guilt? And we can even bring that to who I am. Many people struggle with, I wonder if I could really be forgiven. I really ruined her life. I really destroyed my parents. I really 
is, is there forgiveness? And people often carry with them that sense of, God, is there any hope for me? And even can be religious and busy and attending things and doing things, but still carrying in their heart, is there really mercy for me? And so Paul has an extraordinary statement of tremendous freedom and joy when he says, by the grace of God, I have a completely new identity. And that's the wonder of being a new covenant person, that God not just cleanses us, but recreates us. If anyone is in Christ, it says, there is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have been made new. And, uh, you know, we don't kind of use the word behold much, do we, in our modern conversation? You don't sort of drive down the road and say, oh, behold, McDonald's, you know. <laughs> so lots of modern translations drop the word behold because what do you mean, you know, behold? But I mean, actually it's quite important. Wherever it appears in the scripture, it's like, look at that. You know, maybe we should translate it, check it out. It's kind of, <laughs> look at it, everything's new. God's done something that's, completely changed who Paul is. And he says things like this. He said, from henceforth, we don't know anybody after the flesh. We're not interested in that background. It's not relevant because that is our old world. Now, by the grace of God, God's given me a completely new identity. I wonder if you realize that about yourself. That's right through the scripture. God says, I'll call you by a new name. And names are not just titles in the scripture, they're the identity that's, I, I give you a fresh identity. And grace does that. It gives us a completely new start and sets us free from all that used to affect us, maybe with pride, maybe with shame, maybe with, is it possible to be forgiven? And, and you can just leave the whole thing behind and step up and say, no, God's given me a new relationship with him. I'm his son. He's handed over a new name a new identity to me. And no other evaluation can compete with the one that God gives us. When God gives you a new name, that's it. When God says, that's who you are. And you find in the Old Testament that often there are people whom God raises up and actually literally gives them a new name. So Abram, which was a difficult name to live with, because Abram means exalted father, Imagine meeting him. Uh, hello, I'm, I'm exalted father. Uh, okay, so where's the... Um, don't see any children, exalted father. And uh, God gave him another name, which was father of a multitude. And now he's got to live with that name. Now I'm father of a multitude. Where are all these then? And uh, he's, he's got this name, which actually is telling us his destiny, his incredible purpose in God's plan, that God's made him a promise and said, can you count the stars? Can you count the sand? So many will your children be. I said, Abraham, believe God. And he stepped into a world that's still affecting us today. And when more and more people are saved, that name that God gave him is being fulfilled among the nations. Father of a multitude. And God gave him an identity. He spoke and said, this is who you are. That's what God made him. He finally spoke to uh, Jacob, which means crook. Cheat. Jacob was a cheat. And God gave him a name, Prince with God. He completely changed him. Gave him a name that was of tremendous honor and respect. God changed him. He came to, he came to Gideon. And he said to Gideon, you mighty man of valor. 
And you can imagine Gideon saying, I wonder who he's speaking to. I didn't know who's that. You know. No, you, you Gideon, you mighty man of valor, you valiant warrior. Now, later, Gideon will lead 300 guys who don't even have a sword between them against tens of thousands of soldiers. <laughs> that sounds like a valiant warrior to me. But God called him it when he didn't look very impressive. God said, this is who you are. And you know, if God's going to do that with you, he can call you that as soon as he likes. Because that's what Gideon's going to be. He's a famous warrior in the Bible. He led Israel into triumph. God, by grace, gave him a new name. Gave him a completely new identity. And when God comes into your life, beloved, he's going to change us, rescue us. He does it, first of all, by declaring truth over us, telling us who we are in Christ, and then he gradually works that out into our lives. But it's true from the moment he says it. It's true from the work that he does for us. So you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will give, it says in the Scriptures, by the grace of God. I am what I am. I hope you're living in the freedom of that. I hope you're not constantly looking back and saying, oh, if only. I do regret. That's a shame. Or trying to somehow build up your self-image. Trying to develop and cultivate your self-image. That's totally irrelevant. That's a dead deal. God says, I give you a new name, and it comes from my hand of grace. It's free. It's from God. Amen. Hallelujah. So here we are. By the grace of God, I am who I am. I'm secure in that. God wants you secure in who he's made you to be. And then Paul goes on in this passage, not only to talk about his identity, but he goes on about his ministry. And he's, he's saying actually that his ministry is also a grace gift. So he says, I received grace. Elsewhere he says, I received grace and apostleship, for instance. So in Romans 1, that's what he says in verse 5. I received grace and apostleship. Again, 1 Corinthians 3.10. I received grace to be a wise master builder. And the Greek word is the word from which we get our word architect. He kind of has the master plan. He can see God's plan for the church. And he says in Corinthians, I, I came and served you in the church. I laid a foundation as a wise master builder. And God gave me grace to do that. It's a grace gift. God gave him grace to do that. Again, in Ephesians 3, he talks about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. It's not given to me for me. It's not given to me for my stature so that I can have status, that I can kind of have badges on my arms. Say, well, actually, I am an apostle. Look, it says so on the door. It says so on my printed paper, I'm an apostle. He says, God gave me grace and a stewardship of that grace which was given to me for you. So God gives gifts for the sake of the body. He gives gifts and ministries, not that we might be pumped up or get just our identity, but we might find the sphere that God has for us, the different roles that we have to play. Again, it says in Ephesians 3.8, He gave me grace to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now we need to understand as we look at the Spirit-filled church, Ephesians chapter 4 says, He ascended on high, 
And he gave gifts to men. He, he gave grace gifts. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. And, and it's, he poured out grace, and somehow those grace gifts become people. And Paul says, I received grace to be an apostle. Something God did for him. It's a supernatural gift. And it's important for us to understand that's how the church is going to be born. It, it keeps Jesus on the throne, and he chooses who he will give what gifts to. It's not that you go away to theological college and you kind of take your course and you, you do your thesis and you present it and then they mark them, you know, and they say, right, 80% and above apostles, 70% and above prophets, 60% and above evangelists, the rest pastors and teachers, you know. <laughs> he said, God gave me grace. It's a, and it's a different grace. And it's one of the things we need to see, beloved, that, see, before the Reformation... You had this concept of priest and people, clergy and laity. These are the holy guys. They know God. We just listen. And now God says, no, no, I'm breaking right out. I'm going to have a spirit-filled body, a body that has many gifts, many functions, and I'm going to give these diverse gifts. And when the church only is restricted to one guy who's trying to be everything, we miss the spirit-filled church that God wants because the church needs these diverse gifts. And if we lack any one of them, we lack what, that grace that's with that gift. So we need to be open up to see what God wants. So God will give apostles, God will give prophets, and they'll have a different kind of a ministry. It's a different grace. So sometimes, you, for instance, you see the prophet, I beg pardon, you see the evangelist. And, uh, you know, sometimes the evangelist comes and, and he preaches and, uh, and sometimes it could be the teacher is sitting there and as this evangelist is teaching and preaching and people are listening to him and the teacher's thinking, he hasn't really explained atonement yet and uh, I don't think he's really understood, I don't think he's made it clear and uh, I'm not sure anyone's going to get saved from this presentation. And uh, as he finishes, now you come and people come, oh God, oh you're saved. You know? And the teacher's thinking, hey, how did that happen? And... So the next week, the teacher says, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. And he, he, he preaches about substitution, atonement, the cross, what happened. And people say, oh, this is terrific. Now he says, you come. Okay, now you come. And nothing's happening except people are saying, that's really helpful. Thank you, Pastor. I really understand that much more clearly. And, and you're finding different fruit is coming from different ministry. The prophet is not like the teacher. The prophet lives with a passion. He lives with a burden. It's verses like this, the burden of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. The teacher is the one who works at the word. He, he expounds it. He opens it up. He gives us understanding. The prophet often lives with a passion, something God's shown him. And he can't get free from that passion. And he'll, he'll perhaps say the same word again and again. Because it's just something he's got to live with. It's like Herod said that he took, took John the Baptist, put him in prison. But something about John the Baptist. And so though he wasn't actually going to do what, he went down to hear him. There was something about this prophetic word and prophetic gift that fascinated him. Now, as it happens, Herod wouldn't respond to it, but there's a passionate word that he would have kept hearing from John the Baptist, or you'd have heard from Jeremiah. He just kept on coming with that same thing because he's discharging a burden. And the difference between a, the prophet, 
the teacher, the apostle, the evangelist. These are all different gifts. And so we need to say, Lord, will you multiply these gifts in the church? Will you help us to see the different roles that these gifts have to play? So that the apostles, foundation laying, the prophets bringing revelation, etc., etc. So Paul is saying, I received grace. It's not because he was brilliant. It's not because he was a leading Pharisee. God gave him grace to be an apostle. And God gives different gifts to the church. And so Paul is saying here, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And again, in Romans 12, it says, as each of us, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So God wants the whole body to have multiplied gifts, the grace that's given to us, not according to our background, not according to our education. It's a gift from God that he gives. And again, it says in 1 Peter 4, as each has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The variegated, it could be translated multicolored grace of God. So God gives all kinds of gifts, all kinds of ministries in the church. And, and for many of us, certainly from my background, we just thought the pastor, the, he's the guy. He's the guy who knows God. He's the guy who preached the Bible to us. And that's all, all we really thought of. Now God wants us to say, no, no, there's, there's so much more. There are many ministries and within our ranks, many, many gifts that God wants to raise up. Gifts of administration, of hospitality, of prophesying, of speaking out in tongues, interpreting music, creative things. The Spirit of God enriching a church that's full of life and full of power, not simply listeners who come to hear a great preacher. God wants a many-membered body, and that body is gifted by the grace of God. Amen? That's, Paul says this grace has been given to us. So God gives grace. He gives to us freely. It's nothing to do with what we've deserved. We saw last night about stir up the gift of God that's in you. And we saw then, no, that's no, free. It's gift, not something you've deserved. So with this tonight, we say, no, it's, this is a grace thing. And Paul goes on to say, this grace was not in vain. Okay, so what's he suggesting? Seems to me he's saying it's possible for God to give grace and for is us not to benefit. Why not? Well, let's just give some suggestions. First of all, unbelief can rob you of enjoying the grace of God. And that happens to many people. And it happened to some of the great heroes of the Bible. So, for instance, God comes to Moses and says to Moses, I've got a, a calling on your life, tremendous adventure. I want you to go down to Egypt, bring out my people. And, and the response from Moses isn't, wow, how exciting, let's go. He says, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do it. So his grace coming to him, his calling coming to him, and his response is, no, not me. I, I can't speak. I can't do that. It's beyond my ability. Now, beloved, that can happen to so many of us. It could be that 
you're being invited. Would you do this? Can you get involved in that? Oh, well, I don't think I've got that. I don't think I can do that. And there's an unbelief factor that kicks in. In fact, the scripture says that we want to be careful that it says, if the foot should say, I'm not a hand, I'm not, not therefore part of the body, or an ear should say, I'm not an eye. And what we can do is be full of comparisons. You know, wow, she's gifted, she's so bright, I'm not like her. He's so fantastic, I'm not like him. And we rob ourselves. We make God's free grace, we put ourselves down very often. We feel, I haven't got what it takes. I haven't got what those others have got. And uh, these great Bible heroes like Gideon and so on, saying, no, I can't do it. And God has to kind of persuade them and draw them into what he has for them. And Paul says, no, I didn't want this grace to come to me that was in vain. You see, if we say, well, I don't think that God can possibly forgive me. I did so much in the past. I've made such a mess. And God's saying, come on, I want to use you. And we say, well, I know it's not possible for me. And we are making the grace of God in vain. We're robbing ourselves of all that God wants to give us. So it's hugely important that we don't do that. We let God tell us what he can do with us and receive it and enjoy it and go into the good of it with all our hearts. So let's not make that grace in vain through unbelief. And then secondly, we can make grace in vain through turning again to legalism. So Paul says things like this, Galatians 2.21, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died needlessly. And then again in Galatians 5.4, you who are seeking to be justified by law have fallen away from grace. That's a huge subject. I want to stay here for a bit. When I was with you last year, I think, or maybe the year before, we talked a bit about this. I still want to go there again for a little while. God wants to free us through a real understanding that grace does not need law to be added. Otherwise, it nullifies grace. That's what Paul is saying. So what happened for Paul, and these quotes are from Galatians. Paul went to Galatia, he preached the gospel, and a great church was born. And if you read in the scriptures, it says that they were filled with the Spirit, signs and wonders, miracles happened when he was there. And uh, you know, he was an apostle, he raised up a church. And having raised up that church, he left it and moved on to go and do it again somewhere else. And when he moved out, the Judaizers moved in behind him. And the Judaizers would probably have been believers who come from a Jewish background and come and observe this group of Gentiles who now worship their Messiah. And I can imagine them coming in and saying, wow, this is great that you have accepted our Messiah. And uh, yeah, well, our prophets told us this would happen. And, and we just welcome you in. This is wonderful. You've, you've accepted the Messiah. This is great. Um, but, uh, you know, we've been following him for centuries. Uh, we know what God requires. Um, and really, if you're really going to be acceptable, uh, you just need a few things. You know, I mean, you must get circumcised. And you must keep the Sabbath. And uh, uh, you shouldn't eat that kind of food. And you must keep the feast days. 
And in order to be really accepted, they began to bring in the laws of the old covenant to make sure you're acceptable, to make sure you're really in. Come on, you must add these. If you don't add these things, whew, you're in danger. You know, you just need to add these things to make sure that you're really acceptable. And Paul writes to them, he says, you who will be justified by law have fallen away from grace. If you hear that phrase at all today, you might hear it of someone who doesn't come to church anymore. You say, well, have you seen her lately? No, I think maybe she's fallen from grace. It's like she doesn't come anymore. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul says, if you take on board law, you've fallen away from grace. If you become a legalist, you've fallen away from grace. He's not saying if you don't come to the meetings, you've fallen from grace. He's saying you are adding things. And it's possible for us to try to be acceptable to God by adding things that are really testifying the blood of Jesus is not enough. What Jesus did on the cross is not enough. We need to add some stuff to make sure you're safe. And Paul is furious. And he writes the letter to the Galatians, which is his angriest letter. He says, you fools. This is this, who has bewitched you. It's a big word to use, but adding a bit of law. Who has bewitched you? You're really losing the way. And that can happen to us when we are converted in our generation. You can find that, you know, you maybe hear someone share the gospel with you. You respond and uh, you, you come to Jesus and uh, you understand I can come just as I am. He accepts me. He gives me free righteousness. I'm a child of God now. I'm born again. And then someone comes alongside and says, uh, you become a Christian. Yeah, I have. Great, with some things I need to tell you. Uh, yeah, yeah, you must read the Bible every day. Oh, okay. And you must pray every day. Okay. And um, I shouldn't do your hair like that. And uh, I shouldn't wear those clothes. And uh, it's like, okay, got it. Got it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I got that as well. Got that. Okay, thank you. Oh, great. I, I feel so wonderfully released today by this. <laughs> See, what have we done? We've got to take it on this stuff. That You have to do this to be really acceptable. If you don't do this stuff, somehow you're falling short. You're not, you're not really home and dry because you've got to do this stuff. And we miss the way. We get confused. Because we put ourselves back under law. We think, oh, if I'm going to please God, I need, to, I need to keep these rules. And it's important for us to see where we stand on this. Let me just quickly take you into Romans 7. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's so very, very important that we're clear about this. Because if I ask the question tonight, is the Christian under the law or not? I think some of us are not quite sure. If I say, well, put your hand up if you think we're under the law... Or put your hand up if you think Christians are not under the law. When Jesus said the law will never pass away. Paul seems to say we're not under law. I mean, where does it fit? If I said put your hand up, I think you'd be saying, what are the elders doing? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> he's not quite sure. And yet it's hugely important. Hugely important. And we don't want to nullify grace. We want to get messed up. And so just quickly to look at these first six verses in Romans 7. Don't you know, brothers... From speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That sounds pretty uh, comprehensive. He has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. 
For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband's living, she's joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 6. Now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Let's just take a little time looking at this together. It's so important, beloved, that we know our relationship with God in this. And so here he's saying, it's like we're all married to the law. The law is our husband. He has authority over us. He's saying to us, you should not do this, you should not do this, you should not do this. And, and tells us his holy requirements. And he has this authority. And, and really, you can't argue with him because actually, you know he's right. His laws are good and they're, they're, they're holy and they're appropriate. And so, yeah, but he's always finding fault with you. And also, just to quickly build this part in, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He accuses us day and night. So Satan kind of gets in on this deal. And, and so you're, you're being told you're not keeping the law properly. You're not fulfilling what is required of you. And condemnation comes heavy on the heart. And so the law is saying, this is what I require of you. You can't argue with him because, well, you know he's right. But he never lifts a finger to help you. So this is overbearing husband who's always telling you where you're wrong. He's always right. He never helps you. And Jesus says this, he's never going to die. So you're kind of permanently stuck here with this terrible situation. And then you think, well, he's got to die. He's got to go. And that's the way it looks like Paul is arguing. You've got to get rid of this husband. But Jesus said he's never going to die. And then wonderfully, we find that Paul gives the answer by suddenly turning the whole thing on its head by saying in verse 4, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So the Bible's very consistent. He builds this case where the, well, the law's got this terrible demand over you, but he's not going to die, but you're going to die. You were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. What does that mean? We're talking about Christ, and Paul's favorite phrase for a Christian is someone who is in Christ. Christ had two relationships with the law. One, perfect obedience. Absolute. He was innocent. The Bible says Jesus was innocent. He stood before the crowds. He says, which of you accuses me or finds fault with me? He says, Satan's coming. He's got nothing on me. He's the innocent one. So his relationship with the law was perfect obedience. He fulfilled the law thoroughly. That's one relationship he had with the law. Another relationship with the law is this. 
that he, God, we're told, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That God put on him all our guilt, all our law-breaking, and Jesus, as it were, personified every lawbreaker. He became the embodiment of sin. And in that moment, the law cursed Christ. He died. The law required his death as he became sin. The law required his death. He died on the cross. And Jesus, we're told, died to the law once for all. It's all over. The law was vindicated. God's righteousness is vindicated. Jesus dies. And Paul says this, you died to the law through the body of Christ. That when Jesus died, we were in him. We died with him. It's all over. Our relationship with law is over. It's finished. We died to the law once for all. Judgment is behind us. And so, yeah, the law lives on, but we have died to the law. It says in verse 6, you've been released from the law, discharged from that to which you were bound. The illustration of a soldier having done a military service, maybe you've been in the military for a few years, you've been told what you must do, you've been ordered, commanded, instructed, you've obeyed, and then there comes a day you're discharged. It's all over. And uh, you imagine yourself strolling across the parade ground, you've got no tie on, your jacket over your shoulder, you're relaxed. The sergeant comes around the corner and says, Soldier! Sarge! And you think, hey, wait a minute. I'm discharged. So, bye, Sarge. And it doesn't matter how much he shouts at you, he can't touch you. You're discharged. You're out. That's what the Bible says. We've been discharged from the law. That relationship is finished. See, some people would say, well, we know the law can't save, but once you're saved, you need to go back to the law to be sanctified. But the Bible never says that. Never says that. It says you're discharged. It's over. You don't go back to the law because the law cannot perform that work in you. In fact, it says in verse 4, we just read it, you are made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another. That husband-wife relationship's over. You've died to him, that you might be joined, still using marriage language, you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, Jesus. So we found a new husband. You died to that husband in order that you might be joined to this husband. That we might, it says here, bear fruit for God. Now this is hugely important because this is a new thing fruit bearing there's no talk of fruit in relationship with the old husband the old husband gave you instructions he didn't make you bear fruit he pointed out don't do this don't do this but he didn't change you he didn't make you fruitful now we've died to that husband in order that we might be joined to this husband that we might bear fruit now it's interesting it says in Galatians where we started earlier Galatians chapter 3 And verse 21, it says this, If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would come through the law. 
If a law had been given, that could impart life. See, what it's saying plainly is the law doesn't impart life. If, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would come by the law. So it's just, if it's just the law, let's get into all the schools. Let's go in there. Let's tell them. Just tell them the law. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not. Just tell them. If the law imparts life, let's change our schools. Just tell them the law. Tell them. Tell them. If the law could impart life, then righteousness would come by the law. But the law doesn't impart any life. The law is an impotent husband. He doesn't impart any life. We have died to the law that we might be joined to him who is raised from the dead that we might bear fruit. This is a new deal altogether. We found a husband who imparts life. We found a husband who changes us from the inside. One who says, abide in me and I in you. You will bear fruit. You, my peace I give you. My joy I give you. My love I pour it out in your heart by the Spirit. This is a completely different husband. The other husband gave us rules. This one gives us life. And so, see, often, beloved, you talk to Christians and say, how are you getting on? And they say, well, I'm a bit up and down. I want to suggest they're a bit husband to husband. It's like, hey, well, I, I'm not doing so well, Lord. I'm so sorry, Lord. I feel a bit backslidden and I, I'll try harder. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I, Lord, what I'll do, Lord, I'll, 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 I'll do this. I'll keep this rule. I'll keep... It's, like, it's like I've got a bad relationship with my new husband. The way I'll develop it is really cultivate my relationship with my old husband. <laughs> and will that keep you happy? No, it doesn't work. Try that in the world. You know, it doesn't work. We are saying, no, no, don't go back to somehow complete what's lacking when that husband doesn't impart anything anyway. You, you see, people say, no, you need the law. No, no, you don't need the law. You've died to the law. You're discharged from the law. It's very radical, beloved. The new covenant is radical. We are discharged from that old way. Hebrews says it's obsolete. It's a big word. Hebrews says, the law made nothing perfect. And so don't go back to, well, we've got to keep this, you've got to do that. But isn't this dangerous? No, no, it's not. Because Jesus is a life-imparting husband and the law made nothing holy. Jesus does. And so Paul says, I don't nullify the grace of God by returning to law. Don't do it. Walk away from it. Walk into the arms of Jesus as we were singing this evening. Come to him. Let him impart his life to you. So we don't make the grace of God in vain by legalism, by adding rules, laws. You say, well, Terry, don't you read the Bible then? Yeah, I love reading the Bible. But I don't read it and then say to God, hey, whole chapter today, Lord. Impressive. Good. The whole chapter. <laughs> Prayed for 20 minutes this morning. Well, I must get points for that, no? 20 minutes. See, it's like you, what we do is we, we tend to think if I can do these things, I, I'll gain merit. And, and law keeping is trying to gain merit by your effort. And that whole deal is finished. It's over. Jesus, I'm not trying to impress God. I found someone who did it on my behalf. 
Jesus has thoroughly impressed God. And I'm hidden in him. Hallelujah. So I'm not trying. Paul says the tragedy of his generation was they were trying to establish a righteousness of their own based on law instead of accepting the righteousness that comes from God, which is by faith. They keep going between the two. They're trying to add. And Paul's furious with his Galatians. You can't add. You are saying that what Jesus did isn't enough. He's furious. So we need to say, no, it's a finished deal. The law's done its job. The law is our school teacher to lead us to Christ. When that's done, thank you, goodbye. We've come to Jesus. He will change us from the inside. We cultivate a relationship with him. You, you remain in me, and I'll remain in you. You'll bear much fruit. We develop a loving relationship with our new husband. He produces something phenomenal in us. So Paul is saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's all free. And I'm not going to make that grace in vain. I'm not going to not believe, and I'm not going to go back to rules and make the grace a waste of time. I'm not going to do it. And then let's just look at a few other things before we finish tonight, which are regarded as danger ground for us to make grace in vain. The third one, then, is the flip side of what I've just said. Let me just read a few verses. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Act as free men, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Jude 4. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And then again, 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but I will not be mastered by anything. So we just need to see that the gospel is giving us grace, total freedom, righteousness as a gift, not under law. And Paul and Peter are saying, don't use that as a freedom to just go into gross and say, well, I'm free. I can do this, I'm free. See, the freedom of the, of the Jewish people, it must have been breathtaking, mustn't it? Things they were not allowed to do before. Imagine a Jewish guy, now I've come to Christ, can I really eat pork? It's like, can you eat pork and go to heaven? Yeah, you can eat pork and go to heaven quicker. I mean, it's wonderful. <laughs> But it must have been incredible, the freedoms, the things that they, things you couldn't do before, now you can do. And grace frees us. Paul is saying quite plainly there, all things are lawful. But then he says, I won't be mastered by anything. I'm not going to say, yeah, well, I'm so free now, I can do this and this and this, and, and actually get into things that, destroy you because they become your lord and master they control you and, and in the name of freedom you get into it but actually not free at all you're getting bound by a sin you've walked into it now the, that's, that's not what we're meant to do it says be careful it says act as free men don't use your freedom as a covering don't in the name of freedom walk into evil and so we just need to see that the Bible is very open and honest about this. That's why some legalists are very frightened, because what about the dangers? But the Bible is mature enough to say, no, you walk in grace, but you don't walk into evil. It doesn't say, oh, no, grace is dangerous, let's stay legalists. No, it preaches grace. 
I said, no, but don't do this as well. Be mature. Don't go there. There are things you don't go into. Don't get mastered by them in the name of freedom. That's not what God wants for us. It may be that once you, you said, well, I, I would never even touch alcohol. Because, well, and I, I took this journey. I would, I, well, before I was Christian, I, was, uh, I used to get drunk a lot. And I became a Christian, and I thought, no, I'm going to give all that up. I gave up all sorts of stuff. I, my whole, I thought my whole lifestyle was bad. I must turn away from it. So I used to love jazz, and I used to drink, and I used to go to, you know, and I thought, oh, I, must, I gave away my jazz albums. And it broke my heart. And because uh, <laughs> and, 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 that's my old life. Gave away the jazz albums, and uh, and I stopped drinking, and I, I took out a, a driving insurance as I won't drink at weddings if they, uh, you know, let's, let's uh, toast the bride and groom. No, I won't touch it. I mean, I was just completely no, no, no. And then later, I'm I'm looking at the Bible. I think, well, that's funny, isn't it? Jesus is called a wine bibber, and uh, but you know, that's just that's just uh, fruit juice. Oh, it's a fruit juice bibber. Um, it's just a. You know, I began to think, oh, hold on. You know, so I, I began to rethink. I thought, I don't know, actually, it looks like, looks like they, yeah, in the, in the, they probably did drink wine. So I, I changed my view, and I'm free to drink wine now. But if now, in the name of my liberty, I really drink wine. I mean, I drink wine. I drink wine. <laughs> See, now you're saying, well, I'm free. Now, what are you free? You're free to get mastered. And the scripture's saying, no, no. That's not the way to go. So we have to, I had to come back, and in the end I thought, I gave away jazz albums, my lovely jazz albums. <laughs> Somehow I thought, oh, they're evil. Now I bought all the CDs to replace the albums <laughs> that I gave away. And, you know, because somehow we can get, it's very black and white, that's not in, that's in. That. No, God wants us to live in a relationship with him, Understanding the word, living by faith, not cheating in such a way. Oh, no, I'm free. The Bible says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be drunk. Don't go there. So it's very, we just need to get this balance right, that we don't, in the name of liberty, we make grace in vain. That's another way we can make grace vain. Make grace vain through unbelief. You make grace vain by going back to legalism. You can make grace in vain by license licentiousness, in the name of liberty, getting into all kinds of nonsense. So we need to watch out for that. Two more, and then we're finished. First of all, of the last two, Paul says, I submitted my gospel to those who are apostles before me, lest I should run in vain. So it's an amazing thing that Paul has a grace to be an apostle. In fact, in Galatians, he says, I got it straight from God. He says, if an angel preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. I mean, he sounds a pretty secure guy in what he's got from God. But in the same epistle, he says this, but I did go down and check things out with Peter, James, John, lest I should run in vain. What's that saying to me? I think it's saying this, the value of the body of Christ, that we're not meant to be walking as loners. It's just me and God. I don't listen to anybody else. 
I've got grace to do this. I don't care what you think. I'm not interested in what you think. I'm just going to go for this. And, and Paul is saying, no, I'm not going to have that attitude. He honored those who were in Christ before him. He honored the maturity of the body of Christ. He submitted himself. And beloved, that is such a safe place for us. That's why we don't want to be independent Christians. I've so, been so sad sometimes over the years to see a young guy, a young girl come through. They suddenly get hold of a doctrine. And it's like they become single-issue Christians. It's like every time that you see them, have you read this book? Have you seen this? Have you, it's, like, you know, it's like this is the only subject now. Haven't you said, oh, I've seen this revelation. Think, yeah, that's part of it, but don't. You come on, get the whole thing. Oh, no, this is it. This is the only thing. You must read this. You should come and hear this guy. He's in the next town. Come and, and you think, oh, this is sad. This guy who's had all the possibilities of serving God, he's become a single-issue Christian. And he's not interested in listening to the whole body of Christ. It's so important that we take the worth of the body of Christ. It's so important that we understand something of church history. I think whenever we've done our conferences in New Frontiers in the UK, we nearly always have to make sure there's a church history seminar in there. Let's get rooted. Let's get aware of the breadth of the body of Christ. Let's not think we're the only thing that's on the map. We're the only group that really know. Nobody else really knows. We know. And we're, the, we're the guys. That's tragic. And Paul, who could say, I know, I saw the Lord. He was blinded. I got called by God. Yet still, he says, I submitted to others, lest I should run in vain. And I love it when we find guys like we've had even this last couple of days, pastors coming in from different places, relationships we're forming, friendship. We're not, we're not closed out. We say, no, this is us. No, no, we want to honor the body of Christ. We want to be open and learn from one another. Amen? It's very important. Here's, here's something that Paul says. And he says that you can have a zeal that it's not according to knowledge. That was the tragedy of the Jewish people. They've got a zeal, but oh, they got it wrong. And we don't, I, don't, I don't want to do that. I hate to see it happen. You see a young zealot, and he's suddenly he's off on a tangent. We need to make sure we're not getting that wrong. Then the last one is this. The actual text says this. His grace to me was not in vain, for I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Okay, let's just look at that very important passage. His grace to me was not in vain because I worked harder than any of them. He thought, hey, wait a minute, Paul. Aren't you into grace? What are you doing all this hard work for? Come on, get into grace. Come on, get out of that work. No, grace and hard work are friends, not enemies. Paul says, this grace wasn't wasted on me. I worked harder than any of them. He is not scared of hard work. He's not frightened that people will feel, well, you didn't understand grace. No, the guy, you look at his life. I mean, it's just staggering to see what this man did. His labors. But he understands grace. He understands he's not trying to impress God, but he's working hard. He's giving his life. He's giving his energies. And, and, and it's interesting, he says, I'm working hard, but then he says this, yet not I, but the grace of God that's with me. You feel like saying, hey, Paul, just stand still a minute. 
Who's working here? Are you working? Or is this guy called Grace working? I mean, who's working? I'm working, but not I. What's he on about? What is he actually saying? I think this is ever so important. See, what, how do we understand grace? It's possible for us to say, well, I received grace like I was saved. God gave me grace. You know, you maybe were saved in, you know, 2001 or something. You became a Christian. Now, thank you, Lord. You gave me grace. Now, I will work hard to pay back the debt. So some people think that's what Christianity is. It's paying back the debt. God showed you such favor, such mercy, such grace. Now we will work to pay back the debt. But that's not what Paul's saying. Grace does not put you in debt. Grace frees you. And sometimes even hymns and songs can have that note struck in them that we're kind of paying back the debt. And that's not the deal. It's not that he did that and now we're working hard to say thank you. We're working hard to pay back. No, you can never pay back. It's impossible. Nor does he want you to. He set you free, not put you in debt. And nor is it that we work hard and occasionally come up for a bit of grace. It's like, just labor, 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 and then, you know, come up, bit of grace, back down when we work hard. Come up for a bit more grace. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, now we work hard. He actually says this extraordinary thing. He said, I'm not working, but it's the grace of God that's with me that somehow it's in the doing of the thing God's given you to do that you have grace in the doing of it. It's not working hard to repay. It's not working hard and coming up for a bit of grace. It's finding that when you're doing the thing God's given you to do, there's grace to do it. There's an ability to do it. So Paul says things like this, I'm laboring with all the energy that he mightily inspires within me. When you're doing the thing God's given you to do, you find there's an energy kick in. You find you've got grace for it. I've met a lady at my very first church had the most beautiful gift of hospitality. It was amazing. It was supernatural. I mean, she would stand often at the end of the meeting round. She'd say to me, any students in this week? Because we live near a university campus, and uh, yeah, some, oh, shit, send them down, send them down. You, when, you and Wendy come as well. And, and we turn up, and it's like all these people. And there's the table, and there's the food. And he, I don't know how she does this. And she's happy, and you know, it's not like, not like Mary and Martha. Well, why doesn't somebody else work? I'm working. No, no it's kind of a grace. She's happy in it. The result of it is like she's got children all over the world. You know, people who were there with us for two or three years, they went back to wherever, they keep in touch. And Wow, it's such a grace. A grace. And when we're doing the thing God's called us to do, there's grace in the doing of it. <clears throat> His grace is sufficient. His grace meets the need. God works in us. So Paul is saying, I work hard, but it's not, actually it's not I. So sometimes people can say to you, no, that was a busy program. Weren't you tired at the end? And you feel, well, actually, maybe my body was, but <laughs> I feel a bit exhilarated, actually. I don't feel exhausted. I feel, actually, a bit high. Because <laughs> there's a grace to do the thing God's called you to do. There's a peace and a joy and a flow in God. So Paul is saying, I labored hard, yet actually it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was with me. And so, 
understanding God's grace is so important for us. It's so important for us to comprehend that. So in Philippians it says this, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, that's the clearest statement of what it is to be a believer. You work it out. You're, you're doing it. Yeah, you're doing it. But actually, it's God who is at work in you to will and to do. He affects your, your priorities, your choices. He, he makes you value things you used not to value. He kind of rewrites your value system gradually. God's at work in you. That you prefer things you used not to prefer. You would choose things that you would never have chosen because God's at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. So we give ourselves. Yeah, we're not idle. We're not passive. We don't let go and let God. We engage. But as we engage, we find the grace of God kicks in. So Paul says, I'm doing all this with all the energy that he mightily inspires within me. There is a work of grace taking place in our experience. God's grace comes to us. So just to wind up here, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's given you a new identity. You're not what you used to be. We're not just the product of our upbringing, our education. Now, God's, God's said, no, I'm, I'm giving you a new, a new identity. Simon, son of Jonah, you're going to be Peter. I give you a new identity. I give you a person, I give you something that's completely new. God gives that to us. We don't have to carry over. Can I ever be forgiven? All my backgrounds, irrelevant. We don't know anyone after the flesh now. We know people who are new creations. By the grace of God, new identity. And then not only that, his grace was not in vain. He gives us ministry, diverse ministries. There's grace to be an apostle, Paul's given. Grace to be an apostle. Simon Peter, others are given grace. Gives us grace to be different things. And then we don't let that be in vain by going back, saying, no, I can't going back to law, going to licentiousness, going to individualism, laziness. No, we say, no, we will enjoy this grace, outwork this grace for the glory of God. If we're going to be spirit-filled churches, we need individuals who are very secure in who they are now by the grace of God. And the more we corporately feel the good of that, we gather as a living temple aware of a fresh identity for his praise and for his glory. Amen?